Well, morning, everybody. It is great to see you. Always so good to be together as a church family. Uh, This morning, we are carrying on with a series we've been doing for a number of months now in the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, whether it's a physical one or you've got an app on your phone or a tablet, please open up to Acts chapter 8. Please keep it open, keep it on, keep it in front of you as well as we we sit and, and explore God's Word together this morning. We're looking at Acts 8. Verses 4 to 25. And the title I've given to this morning's message is Motives Matter. Motives Matter. I want to begin with a story I heard this week, and I stress it is a fictional story, of an elderly man who was down on the beach one day with his metal detector. And he finds a magic lamp. And so he picks up this magic lamp and he he rubs it, and out comes a genie. And the genie says to him, Because you have freed me, I will grant you one wish. Whatever your heart most desires, tell me and I'll give you your wish. So the man thinks for a moment and then replies, My brother and I, we had a falling out 30 years ago and I wish that he would forgive me. Well, there was a flash of light and a great thunderclap and the genie declared that his wish had been granted. You know... The genie continued, I must commend you on your choice of a wish. Most men would have asked for wealth or fame, but you only wanted the love of your brother. Is it because you're old or because you're dying? Oh no, replied the man, I'm neither old nor dying. But my brother is, and he's worth about 60 million pounds, and so I really want to ensure I'm in his good books. And as the person I heard tell that story went on to say, they said, it's all about the motives. Motives, motives, motives. It doesn't matter what you do in this world. It matters why you do what you do. That is the most important thing. You can do great things. You can even do things that are very spiritual, as we're going to see today. But if you do them for the wrong reasons, they really don't count for anything. And our passage today in the book of Acts is about motives, very much about motives. It presents us with two contrasting characters, a man named Philip and a man named Simon. And it's also going to shine a spotlight onto each of us and on our motives for doing the things we do. So I've got three uh, points, three headings for us this morning, super simple. Um, First of all, exalting Jesus, then exalting self, and then examining our hearts. First of all, exalting Jesus. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the words. So our passage begins by reminding us of what arose last time we were in the book of Acts. On the day of Stephen's execution. On that day a great persecution arose against the church. And it's, that's something you'd think would be a great tragedy for the church. Halting them in their tracks and ruining what God had been doing so powerfully in Jerusalem. It, here was this model church. A mighty sight to behold as they, as they had been coming together to daily learn and worship and fellowship together. Many had been added to their number as they saw what a beacon of light and love and holiness this great community of Christians had become. But now a great persecution has arisen against them. With Saul, we're told, ravaging the church. His attack on those Christians was brutal and it was sadistic, entering house after house, dragging men and women off to prison or worse, 
simply for the crime of following Jesus. And so many thousands of Christians now in that Jerusalem church are forced to flee. And they scatter throughout the region of Judea in the south and, or up to the region of Samaria in the north. And surely we, we might think that kind of rapid disruption and rapid dispersal, that's going to quench the church's witness and it's going to hinder the spread of the gospel. But no, quite the opposite takes place. For there is a divine and unstoppable hand at work behind all that is taking place here. This scattering of the church in Acts 8... It is like the scattering of seed by a wise farmer. Because these everyday believers, they carry the gospel with them wherever they go. They share it with whoever they meet. You see, Saul thought he was snuffing out and destroying the church's witness. When in fact he ends up spreading and disseminating the gospel across dozens of cities instead. The gospel spreads like wildfire now on a windy day. And Acts 8, immediately following the stoning of Stephen, it becomes this milestone moment in the book of Acts. A boundary-crossing moment when the promise that Jesus made back in chapter 1, verse 8, now breaks through into its next stage of fulfillment. He said, "I'll, I'll meet you, my witnesses, in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and then on to the ends of the earth. And here we see the gospel spreading from Jerusalem to Samaria. And the first person we hear carrying the gospel with them across the border into Samaria is a man called Philip. But this isn't Philip the apostle. This is Philip the deacon, just like Stephen had been. This is Philip, the regular member of the church, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, a man whose heart is simply set on serving God wherever he goes. A man who showcases what it is to simply and sincerely make much of Jesus. So verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Uh, Now Samaria, if you know a little bit of, of your New Testament, you'll know is not a place that was known for its friendliness to the Jews and those from Jerusalem. Traditionally, the Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Jews, in fact, were especially hostile to the Samaritans. They considered them religious half-breeds. They they thought of them as very much outside of the community of God's people. And here's Philip now, a refugee in a land of enemies. But Philip's heart is set not on hating people, but loving people. And he loves to tell them about Jesus. And the effect is powerful. Verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And then verse 12, they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God. And the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So what is the secret of Philip's powerful witness? Yes, his preaching, it was accompanied by miraculous signs. And they were especially important at this boundary-crossing milestone moment. But as we're going to hear in a few moments, these people had seen miraculous signs before of a very different nature, but equally impressive. So what's Philip's real secret? I don't think it's his miracles. 
I think it's much more his message and his motive. His simple Jesus-exalting message and his motive that others might come to know and prize Jesus too. And because that was his message and his motive, you see, Philip here, he doesn't come into town waxing lyrical about himself. He wasn't out to sell or promote his own ministry, like, oh, here's a new opportunity for me to be a, a big preacher in a new town. He wasn't motivated by the desire to impress or make something of a name for himself. He was simply there to love and serve people by loving and exalting Jesus. His secret was his love for Jesus. Kent Hughes writes this. He says, Philip preached with power because he loved Jesus. He was not an apostle. He was not a big shot. He was, in fact, a refugee in a hostile environment. He probably would have liked to remain in Jerusalem, but once in Samaria, he was so full of love for Christ that he could not stop telling others about Jesus. His power came from a heart love for Christ, and before he knew it, he had a revival on his hands. Here is the secret of truly effective Christian witness, the kind of witness that the Holy Spirit loves to bless, and it is having a heart of love for Jesus and being motivated by a desire for others to know and love him too. And Philip, driven by that deep love for Christ, shares Christ in such a way as to leave people in awe of Christ, not in awe of Philip. And the crowds, they give their attention with one accord to his message, and the effect, we're told, is that there was much joy in that city, and many came to believe and be baptized. Many came to be amazed, not by Philip, but by Jesus. And it's that that ought to be the deepest desire of our hearts as well. A, a simple mission statement to, to shape every facet of our lives that we do all we do to love, honour and exalt the Lord Jesus. That's the example of Philip. But then Luke turns the spotlight, re-steers it onto another man. A second man who was there that day, a man who was driven by a very different set of motives. So second heading for this morning, exalting self, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon. Now those words of introduction, they might sound familiar. They're actually remarkably similar to chapter 5, verse 1. There we, we saw this a few weeks ago. Um, at the end of chapter 4, Luke describes Barnabas. And Barnabas' genuinely generous heart. And then Luke begins to describe someone with the opposite of a generous heart. And so chapter 5, verse 1 begins, but a man named Ananias. And Ananias, as you remember, he was like the anti-Barnabas. He was a hypocrite who only wanted to look generous so that others would be impressed with him and hold him in high esteem. And now, once again, as having introduced us to a the loving, Christ-focused heart of Philip, now Luke presents us with a man driven by very different motives, the, the anti-Philip. Verse, uh, uh, verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So Simon is like this celebrity magician in the city. Now, we're not told whether he wore, wore kind of fancy robes with perhaps signs of the zodiac all over them or something like that. We don't know how he dressed. 
And it's also not clear whether he's just a trickster or whether he genuinely is tapping into dark occult powers, probably the latter, judging by how many people in that city were actually possessed by unclean spirits by the time Philip arrived. But what's most striking about Simon is not even the, 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 the magic he performs, but it's the incredibly high opinion that he has of himself. He actually says of himself that he's somebody great. I am someone momentous. That is Simon's message. And this may even have been a claim to divinity. This might be Simon effectively saying, I am God. It really is hard to get more self-promoting and un-Philip-like than this. And up to now, the people of Samaria have been fully taken in by his supposed greatness as well. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man, this Simon, is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So the people, they, they really believed that this Simon was the very power of God on earth. Maybe they thought he was the Messiah because of the grand claims he made and because of the signs and wonders he performed. The problem is, of course, whatever supernatural power it was that he possessed hadn't come from God, but from the devil. Simon was a false prophet. Simon is a deceiver. Now, how can we know, how can we know that about him? How can we know he's a deceiver before we even read on? Well, as, uh, as one commentator, Tony Merida, writes, while true prophets will direct praise toward God... False prophets receive praise as fuel for their own selfish egos. Which is to say, you can tell an awful lot about a person by where they choose to direct other people's praise. Do they seek praise for themselves or do they seek praise for God? Do they serve and help others so they'll be admired or so that God will be admired? That is the night and day difference between Philip and Simon. Simon preaches himself, Philip preaches the kingdom of God. Simon exalts himself, Philip exalts the cross and Jesus. Simon wants people to be amazed with himself, Philip wants them to be amazed with Jesus. Simon wants people's hope and trust to be in himself, Philip wants people's hope and trust to be in God. And at first sight, to the Samaritans, they might have appeared to be two very similar men both preaching, proclaiming a message about greatness, both performing signs and wonders. But look beneath the surface and their motives stand in the starkest possible contrast. One is of God and one is of the devil. There is no middle ground. You, you and I, we, we can't exalt both God and man. And there can only be one victor in a contest like this. And so Philip's message and Philip's God easily topple the arrogant claims of Simon. Verse 11, for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Many, many people in this city now hearing the true gospel and coming to faith in Jesus. And this kind of reminds me of the scene at the end of The Wizard of Oz, remember that classic movie, uh, where the curtain is pulled back to reveal that the great Oz, in this case the great Simon, is nothing more than a fraud. Pulling levers, 
or dabbling with the dark arts, but who can't possibly give people what they truly need and desire. Man's claims of greatness and grandeur, however impressive they might sound, will always be dwarfed and torn asunder in this way when they come face to face with the true greatness of God. Man makes great claims about himself, but come face to face with the greatness of God, and man is crushed and God is lifted up. Just as the Lord squashed man's ambitions at the Tower of Babel, so as the gospel is preached here in Samaria, Simon's lies are revealed for what they really are. And the people's allegiance is transferred en masse from a mere man to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel here, it's liberating people. It is freeing people from their worship of men. This is a glorious thing that's happening in Samaria now. And it's just one of the many ways that the gospel brings freedom and is such good news for the world that we live in today. As we look around at our culture right now, it's not difficult to see how it's just infatuated with worshipping people and promoting self. We can see here, I guess, there have always been celebrities like Simon, but perhaps never before have people been more immersed in celebrity culture and celebrity gossip as they are today. Everybody, it seems, is trying to be famous, to be a celebrity. And of course, with the advent of social media, so many people are are caught up in that, trying their hand at that, caught up in the pursuit of personal fame and glory. And we can look at that and we can wonder, how will we ever be able to compete with that and convince people that it's actually much better to worship God than it is to worship ourselves and other people? But here, I think, is the answer for us. In our evangelism, we don't need to try and be impressive enough to get people's attention. We don't need to try and wow people and offer spectacle, compete with the spectacle that the world can offer. In fact, if we focus on promoting ourselves, we won't get people's attention at all or be of any help to them when we do. What we actually need to do is quite simple. We need to simply promote Jesus, not ourselves. We simply need, like Philip, to love Jesus and to tell people about him, to proclaim the good news of his kingdom and to humbly and faithfully spread the word about him. That's it. That's the Bible's evangelistic strategy. Love Jesus and love telling others about him. And that's what Philip does here. And so striking was his message and his motive that, verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, even Simon continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So so now everyone is amazed, including Simon. The question is, of course, is Simon genuinely converted? What is it that's really motivating his new allegiance to Jesus? What is it that has Simon so amazed? Well, it's what takes place next that reveals the true nature of Simon's sudden Christian interest. Verse 14, Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this is actually a really unusual event in the book of Acts, one that only occurs twice. Here, as the gospel crosses the first boundary line into Samaria, and then we'll see it again in Acts 10 as the gospel crosses the next boundary and goes uh, to the Gentiles. So from Jews to Samaritans to Gentiles. There's not normally any need for the apostles to visit or for anyone to lay on hands in order to impart the Spirit. The the normative experience throughout Acts and taught throughout the New Testament is that a person will receive the Holy Spirit the moment they first believe and put their faith in Jesus. But here, God uniquely delays the Spirit's arrival so that the apostles can come down and see with their very own eyes, yes, the gospel really has crossed the boundary into Samaria and reached the Samaritans. And it wasn't just that Peter and John as apostles, they they were going down so they could assure everyone else. No, this was also God assuring Peter and John that Samaritan Christians really were just as much a part of the church now as Jewish Christians. It's actually really poignant here as well that that one of the two apostles is John. If you remember back in, uh, way back in Luke 9, there was a time when John, turning to Jesus, wanted to call down fire, the fire of judgment upon a Samaritan village. But now, with a heart that's been transformed by Jesus, John is eager to call down not judgment, but the Holy Spirit upon these first Samaritan believers. Okay, but what of Simon? Simon's there, he's watching this. What does Simon make of all this? Will the arrival of two of Christ's apostles, will the arrival of the Holy Spirit himself, convince Simon once and for all that his old, self-glorifying, self-promoting ways, they were wicked and wrong and best left well behind him. Sadly, no. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon's motives haven't changed at all. His hunger for fame and glory is the same as it's always been. And it's clear now that his amazement earlier on centered not on the good news of the gospel, but only on how Philip's gifts and miracles were more impressive to people than his own. Simon, you see, can see that his own star is fading. His time in the limelight is coming to an end, whether he's going to be replaced by Philip or even by Jesus. And so like a a forgotten celebrity, he thinks to himself, I'll reinvent myself and I'll get back into the limelight by getting in on this new Holy Spirit power. Simon's motive, just as before, is influence, power and fame. Kent Hughes says, remember, power had been this man's consuming narcotic, life's magic elixir. He had spent long nights dreaming and scheming his way to the top. He had to have this new power at any price. Simon doesn't want God. He doesn't see his need for Jesus to be his saviour. He doesn't even really want the Holy Spirit for himself. He simply wants power the power to bestow the Spirit on others, to impress them and wow them and exploit them and be called great by them. And he's willing to pay for that power. In his own twisted world of celebrity and self-promotion and a money-opens-every-door kind of philosophy, 
The last thing he now expects from Peter is a firm refusal and rebuke. But that is what Peter gives to him. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, which is uh, one of the paraphrase versions of the Bible, puts it as to hell with you and your money. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. So why does Peter so strongly rebuke Simon? For two reasons. First of all, because Simon needs to understand that salvation is a gift that we simply cannot buy or earn. He says, you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Simon's philosophy was everything has a price. Everything can be bought. But what he doesn't understand is that salvation's price is the priceless blood of Jesus. Shed for sinners on the cross. Meaning that all of the blessings of the gospel, forgiveness, right standing before God, adoption, the indwelling power of the Spirit, to name just a few of those blessings. They're all offered to the most undeserving of sinners but they can only be received by grace as a gift. They can only be received by those who realize they don't deserve them. But Simon still thinks he's great. He still thinks he's impressive. He still thinks he can buy his way into God's favor. He thinks he's still worth it, as the shampoo advert says, because you're worth it. That's what Simon thinks. And so Peter is strong in correcting him. You cannot obtain the gift of God with money. You cannot earn it. If Simon hasn't understood grace yet, then he hasn't understood the gospel yet. And Peter doesn't want him to remain confused or under any delusion that he is yet a Christian. The second reason Peter rebukes him is because of Simon's motives. So firstly, he doesn't understand grace. Secondly, he rebukes him because Simon uh, has wrong motives. Simon's heart which we couldn't really see clearly earlier on. Now it's on full display in his actions and in his words. Just like Jesus once said, a tree is known by its fruit. Earlier on, Simon appeared to become a Christian. He got baptized. He was saying and doing all of the right things at the beginning. But in the end, his profession and his baptism, they don't count for anything because it turns out his motives were all wrong. His heart, as Peter says, is not right before God. His heart remains unchanged. His request for power reveals he's still out to make a name for himself and to make others think he's great. And so Peter firmly yet lovingly rebukes him. And I say lovingly because there is kindness as well as strength in Peter's words to him. There's, there is a gracious appeal in what Peter says to him here. An appeal to repent. Verse 22, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Now I look at this verse and I think, praise God, there is forgiveness available for sinful motives of the heart, just as much as there is forgiveness for every other kind of sin. You sat here this morning feeling convicted. Sin, I've got sinful motives of the heart. Oh, there is grace for that and there is forgiveness for that in Jesus if we will only humble ourselves before God 
and seek his forgiveness through Jesus. Peter knows that's what Simon needs most of all. Simon needs not, not power, not prestige, but pardon and forgiveness. Verse 23, Peter says, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Which is to say, I see, Simon, that your heart is in a wretched state. That you're a captive to your own sin. You're a prisoner to your selfish desires. Peter isn't strong with Simon here because he despises Simon, but because he loves him. He knows that the gospel alone can free Simon from the rottenness of his own self-obsession and self-promotion and his self-exaltation. Peter knows the gospel is what can bring Simon into the most glorious liberty of knowing and living for Jesus. So he wants Simon to see the sin that is in his heart and seek God's forgiveness for it so so that finally Simon can walk through freedom's gates out into the sunshine of self-forgetfulness to bask in the liberty of living for the good of others and the glory of God. That is where freedom lies. That is what Peter wants for Simon. And that is what God wants for every single one of us here this morning. God wants us to be set free from living to promote ourselves and impress others and instead to live for others. And to love and make much of Jesus. To to stop striving for approval and instead for us to find rest in the love of God and in his gospel of grace and in a life devoted to exalting Jesus. That is what God wants for every single one of us this morning. Which brings us to our third and final heading. Examining our hearts. Examining our hearts. This this passage poses a question to us this morning. How will our hearts respond? Which of these two men do we most want to be like? Whose glory do we most desire? Would we prefer to say with Simon, look at me everybody, I am so great. Or do we want to say with Philip, look at Jesus. He is amazing. Now maybe... Perhaps, as you're listening this morning, God is using his word to reveal to you you're not actually yet a Christian. Perhaps you've called yourself a Christian for a long while. Maybe you've even been outwardly living the Christian life, devoting yourself to doing lots of Christian things. But examining your heart again this morning, you begin to realize, I've really been doing it all for myself, not Jesus. I realize I'm still like Simon, still more in love with myself than Jesus. If that's where you find yourself this morning, if that's what God is graciously revealing to you, please don't despair, but please do take action. Give your life to Jesus today. Today is the day to truly begin to die to yourself, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Jesus once said, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, but whoever gives it up for my sake will find it. You see, the tragedy of this morning's passage is not that Peter uncovers Simon's false Christianity. He pulls off the lid and and all the messiness is seen. Now that's a really positive thing. The tragedy here is how Simon responds to that revelation. Verse 24, and Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, 
that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. The tragedy here is that Simon can't even bring himself to actually pray to God himself and ask for mercy. He doesn't want to stop living for his own greatness and ask God for forgiveness. Rather, all he does is ask Peter to pray for him and then only that he would escape God's judgment. He doesn't want to be judged. Who wants to be judged? But he also has no desire to stop living for his own glory. Please don't leave here this morning like Simon, unwilling to change, unwilling to turn to God in repentance, unwilling to throw yourself on the loving mercy of Jesus. Let Jesus lead you into the real freedom of receiving his forgiveness and beginning to live for his glory. But what about all of us, all of those of us here this morning who are already saved by the mercy of God, we're already forgiven? All of us who long this morning to live, not to make much of ourselves, but of Jesus, how ought we to respond to this passage? Well, by taking this God-prompted opportunity to examine our own hearts, to this morning assess our motives, to ask of ourselves, why do I do the things that I do? Even the good Christian things I do, why do I do them? Let's each of us take the time this afternoon, this week, to examine the different facets of our lives. Think about our home life, our work life, our social media usage, the way we spend our money, our lifestyle choices, even our church involvement and our acts of service. This passage invites us to ask ourselves in all of these different areas, am I living for the attention of others or for the glory of God? What's my motivation in doing good to other people? Is it to truly help them, or is it much more just to impress them? Is my desire to grow in godliness just so that others will think well of me, or is it because I genuinely want to grow more like Jesus? Is my eagerness to serve in the church driven more by love for God or love for myself because I just want to impress and be respected, and maybe even be promoted to a more prominent position. Let's ask ourselves, are there things that I say to other people, the, the jokes I make to try and get a laugh, the things I post online, the encouragements I give, the topics I love to talk about, are they motivated more by a desire to bless, or sadly much more often by a desire to impress? Now the truth is, this side of heaven There'll always be a battle going on in our hearts between these pure and impure motives. And really the, the, the work of God in, a, in our hearts this morning, for those of us that are, that are believers in the Lord Jesus, the work of God is not that we go out of here feeling like, oh yeah, do you know what? I'm doing pretty well. No, the work of God is, oh Lord, you've shone a spotlight again into my heart. And you've, though there is a deep desire to live, to make much of Jesus, there is a mess in my heart. So many ways in which I'm trying to impress others and make much of myself. That is God's gracious work to us as Christians this morning. So there'll always be this battle between a Philip-like heart to make much of Jesus and a Simon-like heart within us to make much of our own greatness. The call of God's word this morning here is not to think we can achieve perfect motives, but it is to more eagerly desire them. To be aware that selfish ambition can often piggyback on our best intentions. 
the intent of God's word this morning is to bring us to a place where we're not okay with that. We're not happy to settle for that. It is a call to humble ourselves and frequently examine our hearts and repent of impure motives and to pray that God would daily purify our desire to serve him. God's word to us this morning is a a glorious invitation to follow in the footsteps of Philip. To remember that Jesus really has freed us from any need to serve ourselves. And he's done that by already so completely serving us, laying down his life for us. To free us from the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. He has done that to free us from living godless lives of self-importance and instead to live lives of God-glorifying, others-centered, Jesus-exalting gospel fruitfulness. That is the freedom that Jesus welcomes us into. Just like these early Christians are brothers and sisters in the faith who even as they were scattered out into strange and foreign places made much of Jesus wherever they went. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your clear and loving word to us this morning. Oh Lord, we pray, please search our hearts and help us to see the places in our lives where we are still self-seeking. Any ways that we're seeking your power for the wrong reasons. And we pray, Lord, please forgive us for all of the times when our thoughts, words and behavior have been self-promoting rather than Christ-exalting. Oh Lord, please cleanse and wash our hearts this morning. Please strengthen our devotion to Jesus. Help us, we pray, to seek you. Help us to make much of Jesus. Help us to love others by making much, not of ourselves, but of him. And please, we pray, use us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with our community to point many more people to fullness of life and freedom and joy through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.